0: Would you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9? We're going to be looking at uh, verses 18 through 27 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along, there are some under the chairs where you are sitting, and you could use that as well. We've been making our way through Luke's gospel. Last week, uh, Pastor Ken spoke on the The story of the feeding of the 5,000 and gave a good message there, and we're going to pick up this story now with Peter's confession of Christ. Let me read it for us. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me... He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, this is such a powerful passage. It was a turning point in the Gospels when the apostles professed Christ as Messiah. And they understood and they were beginning to see more and more clearly who Jesus really is. Father, I thank you that For most of us in this room, we have come to that point, maybe all of us, but if there's anyone here who has not come to that point of seeing Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I pray that today might be the day that you would look at what Luke has to say here and hear these words about Jesus, that he is indeed the Messiah, the Christ of God. Let's pray. Amen. There was a recent story in the news about teenage drivers, and it was saying that more and more of them are waiting to get their driver's license, and I think that's kind of interesting. I mean, driving is a skill that eventually everybody wants to have to be able to get around and go where you need to go, but I can understand if you're in the cities and you're a little nervous about it or you're looking at the traffic and all those things and thinking, well, maybe I'll just wait a little bit. I understand that. When I was growing up in a farm community, though, uh, learning to drive was an absolute necessity, and it started at a pretty young age. I don't even remember quite how old I was when my dad put me behind a truck in the field and told me to drive to the other end, but the uh, thing I do remember is that I was not old enough to both see over the the, uh, driver's wheel, the steering wheel there, out the windshield, and touch the pedals at the same time. Um, What my dad would do is in harvest time, when we were combining grain, he would uh, get the truck started moving about two miles an hour. He'd have the throttle pulled out and set. And then he'd say, okay, I just want you to steer it to the other end of the field. And when I got there, I'd have to jump down, push in the clutch, take it out of gear and turn it off. And that was my assignment. Well, you can imagine. I mean, I think about that today, and I think there are some people who probably think that was abuse, you know, with a kid or something. I don't know. But, but we had to learn to drive at a very young age. By age 13, there were special allowances that during harvest season, uh, you could drive on a highway a grain truck for farm purposes uh, if you had an adult with. And so my mom would ride with, and I would be driving grain trucks back and forth, hauling grain and unloading them in our bins and then it was age 16 though when just like everybody else that's when I could actually get a driver's license and you had to take the behind the wheel test and I don't know what that's like today but back then there was one part of the test that concerned everybody who was going to take it because it could mean the difference between passing and failing and that was parallel parking (laughs) <laughs> any of you uh, kind of dread parallel parking too when you were taking that test and the reason is even though other parts are are equally important or maybe even more important you know stop mind stop signs, signaling when you turn uh responding to road conditions and things that come up all of that is important but if you took that test and you hit one of the posts that was an accident and you failed I mean, parallel parking could be the difference between getting a driver's license or not getting one. And I remember, you know, like praying, Lord, please help me to get it between the posts and not hit anything. I didn't quite care if I was a foot and a half away from the curb or right on top of the curb. I just wanted to get between the posts. And fortunately, on that day, I did and was able to pass my test. But in our study of Luke, there is one question that keeps coming up over and over again. And it is the question that everyone must answer. It's the question, who is Jesus? And this question has been presented by Luke in many different passages already. It's not always in the same form, but it is the same intent. For example, it's the question that the people asked in Luke chapter 4 when they heard Jesus teach. And they were wondering, who is this man? I mean, isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, where did he get all his learning and understanding? It's the question that John the Baptist asked when he was in the maritime prison, and he was there, um, and he asked his disciples. He sent them to say, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for? It's the question the disciples asked when he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? It's the question that Herod the Tetrarch asked when he heard about the miracles that Jesus was performing in Galilee. And he said, who is this that I hear such things about? And here in this passage, it is the question that Jesus asked the disciples. Who do you say I am? It is the one question that everyone must answer. One day we will all stand before Jesus. And how we answer that question is literally the difference between heaven and hell. So, what does Luke tell us about Jesus in this passage? Well, he begins by telling us that Jesus is more than a prophet, he is the Messiah. He begins by saying that once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with them, he asked them this question. I think it's interesting that Luke puts this in the context of prayer. And there are many different occasions when Jesus is seen praying. And this was one of those important occasions. And I have no doubt that he was praying for his disciples, that their eyes would be opened, that they would answer this question correctly he's praying that they have come to recognize who he is indeed. But he starts by asking them, what do the crowds say? Who do people say that I am? And they had heard the rumors. They had heard what people were saying out there as they were with the crowds. And they replied that, well, some think that you're John the Baptist. Come back to life. Some think that you're Elijah or one of the other prophets of old. And this is what the people were speculating about. But then he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And they must have looked at one another and kind of maybe mouthed what they were going to say, but Peter, who was often the spokesman for that group, spoke up and he said, you are the Christ of God. The word Christ or Christos means anointed one. It's the Greek word for Messiah, Messiah, God's chosen one. You are the one whom God has sent to be our deliverer. You are the one that we have waited for all these years. You are the one that the prophets of old have all spoken about. We have come to believe that you are the Christ of God. Well, it must have blessed Jesus' heart to hear that response from these men. But there was more that they would need to learn. Now think about that today. If you were to ask the crowds today, just people in general, what they think about Jesus and who he is, what do you think they'd say? I think we would get a variety of answers just like you did back then. There are people who think that Jesus is a prophet. I mean, that's what Islam teaches. Islam teaches that Jesus is a prophet, but he is not God. Some think that he's a moral teacher and they like what he says. You know, they, they admire the words of wisdom that he taught. And they would put him in a category maybe like with Gandhi or Confucius or Moses or others, you know, as good teachers. Some think he's a religious leader who founded Christianity. Some call him a fraud. They don't believe in him at all. They think that all of this stuff was just made up. Or some think that he was just a man. And they want to remove anything supernatural, like Thomas Jefferson did when he wanted to cut out all the supernatural parts in the Gospels and just focus on Jesus' words and teaching. Or what Albert Schweitzer did when he was on his quest for the historical Jesus. Some just don't believe or want to accept the supernatural element, and so they try to focus on the other parts. And some will even say, I don't think it really matters who Jesus was. Jeremy Bowen, working for the British Broadcasting Corporation a number of years ago, uh, narrated a documentary that he had put together about Jesus' life. And he said the important thing is not what he was or what he wasn't. The important thing is what people believe him to be. A massive worldwide religion numbering more than 2 billion people that follows his memory after 2,000 years? Well, that's pretty remarkable. But Jeremy Bowen was wrong. It does matter who Jesus is. It's not what we want him to be. It's not what we think him to be. If Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, if he is not the Savior of the world, then our faith is in vain. Who Jesus is and what he did is the foundation of our faith. But what if you asked those who knew him best? What would the apostles say? They would say that he is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's why Luke wrote this gospel. That's why Matthew, Mark, John wrote their gospels, so that we could examine the evidence. They want us to look at his life. Listen to His teaching. Look at His power and authority and see the miracles that He performed over nature, over demons, over sickness and death. Look at His death and resurrection. And you will see that there is no one else like Him. Last week, Pastor Ken was talking about the feeding of the 5,000. and That was considered to be a, me- a messianic miracle par excellence. I mean, the the people believed that when the Messiah came, he would provide bread in the wilderness, just like God had done with Moses. He would be this one who was to come. And so when Jesus did what no one else could do, all over, these kind of thoughts are popping up. Is he the Messiah? Is he the one whom God has sent? And the apostles affirm that for us. But what kind of Messiah would he be? Well, Luke tells us that Jesus' mission is to save us from our sins. That's why he came. In Luke 19.10, he says that Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. We were lost in our sin. That all of us have sinned, and we have broken God's law. We've rebelled against Him. We've gone our own way, and because of that, we needed a Savior. We needed one who was perfectly righteous, who would die in our place and pay the debt that we owed. That's what Jesus came to do. And this passage is really a turning point in the Gospel, A turning point in Jesus' ministry. Prior to this time, he has spent most of his time in Galilee where he performed these miracles and was teaching the crowds. But from this point on, his face is going to be set toward Jerusalem. He is going to the cross. He knows what awaits him, but this is why he has come. And so even though Jesus' disciples have given the right answer, Jesus moved quickly to correct any misunderstanding that they had about the Messiah. You see, the disciples believed that when the Messiah came, he would be a political and spiritual leader like King David. I mean, that was their model. That's what they're thinking. You know, that when the Messiah comes, things are going to turn around. And he's going to come and he's going to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. Israel's going to be the chief of the nations. People will come from all over the world to worship God. Uh, We will overthrow our enemies, in this case, Rome, and there will be freedom and righteousness. And so they're thinking political, spiritual kingdom. And they weren't the only ones thinking that way. It's what everyone did. And it's why Jesus warned them strictly not to tell anyone, not yet. He wanted to prevent any kind of messianic fever. He knew that if the crowds thought that he was the Messiah, they would want to come and make him king by force. But he didn't want anything to interfere with his plan, his mission to go to the cross. And so he told the disciples very clearly that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. Can you imagine how that must have sounded to them? I mean, this is the first prediction Jesus has given about his coming death in Jerusalem and his resurrection. But they had no category for it. I mean, they they just couldn't understand. Messiahs don't die. I mean, if you really are the Messiah, this isn't going to happen, which is why in Matthew's Gospel, Peter says, never, Lord. And Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus must go to the cross. And it was there in the Old Testament, if they had only seen it, in Isaiah 52 and 53, The passage about the suffering servant, the one who would take upon himself our sins, who would be crushed for our iniquities. And it would be through faith in him that we could find forgiveness and be healed. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 31, Psalm 69, Psalm 118 all talk about what is going to happen to the Messiah in Jerusalem. His suffering and his death. Peter would later write in his epistle that we should have known. We should have known the order, even of suffering and then glory that would follow. It's the way of the cross. It's the way that God intended it to be. Jesus' death, his suffering was not some action, uh, you know, interruption in his plan. It was not some accident that happened to him that was unfortunate. It was his very plan that he would die for the sins of the world. And so Jesus has his face set toward Jerusalem. You know, on this Fourth of July weekend, I want us to think for a moment about those men who signed that original Declaration of Independence. When they did that, they knew that they were risking everything their lives, and their fortunes. If they were caught by the British, they would have been tried and hung for being a traitor. Why were these men willing to declare this independence from Britain? Why were they willing to set out on this course that could lead them to death? You know, those words were written so eloquently in our Declaration of Independence. That when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands that have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they were willing, with a firm reliance on divine providence, to pledge to each other their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. They took this risk because they believed that it was the right thing to do. When Samuel Adams signed that declaration, he said, We have this day... Restore the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven, and from the rising to the setting of the sun, let his kingdom come. And they did not know how this was going to turn out. They, they knew this was an experiment. No nation had ever been formed by the consent of the governed. To establish this kind of Republic and the way in which they did was taking a great risk. And again, they called it an experiment. There was a time when Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration, a devout Christian, a good doctor, asked his friend, John Adams, do you think this experiment will succeed? And John Adams replied, it will if we fear God and turn from our sins. Adams was the one who, when he became president, made that statement, let none but good men ever live in this house, the White House. He believed that this day ought to be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary of our nation. He thought that there should be festivals all across the land, the gathering of people for fireworks and food and celebrations, but also that it should be a solemn assembly giving thanks to Almighty God for His providence and His favor. And so on this weekend, it's right for us to give thanks to God for the blessings that we enjoy and to say thank you, God, for our country, and may we continue to follow you. But when we look at this passage once again, and we think of what Jesus is saying here, he has laid out that this is the way of the cross, suffering and then glory. And he asks us to follow that same path. Jesus calls us to follow the way of the cross, and that's what we see in verses 23 to 27. And it is the same path for all who will follow Jesus, suffering and then glory. Acts chapter 14 says that it is through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. All of us in this life are going to go through trials and suffering and challenges to our faith and difficulties in our life and in our walk with God. And it is the way of the cross. We do this as we follow Jesus, and then that day will come when we will join Him in glory. That day when He makes all things new and there is no more suffering, no more sin, no more presence of evil in our world. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must, must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If we are going to be followers of Jesus, this is what he requires, that we must confess Christ. That we individually must answer that question Who is Jesus? Have we come to recognize him as Lord and God? And have we asked him to be our Savior, our Lord? Have we come to that point where we have denied self, where we have surrendered everything to him and laid it all on the altar? Our wealth, our plans, our time, our life, all of it. God, we are here. And we exist for you, and we want to serve you. Have we taken up our cross? To take up our cross is not some trial or hardship that we bear. To take up our cross is to die to self. You can think of that image in those days where someone was sentenced to be crucified, and they were forced to carry this cross beam to the place of execution. It was a one-way trip. There was no turning back. They knew they were going to die. And when we choose to follow Christ, it is to die to self. There's no turning back from that. But we are to follow Him. And that command to follow is continuous until either Jesus returns or God takes us home. And then Jesus explains why this is the best way to live in verses 24 to 26. Why this is the way that leads to joy. Why this is the way that leads to glory. He says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. The person who thinks that the way to be successful in this life is to accumulate as much as you can in terms of possessions or fame or fortune or glory or whatever it may be, and who sets their heart on that but does not know God will lose it all in the end. And you can live that way. You can choose to set your aim on climbing to the top of the ladder or making the most money you can or doing all of those things. But if you do not know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, to gain the world and forfeit your soul is a bad investment. I love that phrase, keepers are losers and losers are keepers. It's that great reversal in the kingdom. We see it in so many different areas of life That is the person who is willing to give all Who gains all in the end and it's the person who thinks that man i just got to hang on to all this stuff and all these things and i'm going to go it my way and i'm going to do what i want to do that will lose it all in the end because that day is coming when we will all stand before jesus and jesus says if anyone is ashamed of me and my words the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So what? If in this life you were to accumulate the most money or power or fame or pleasure or comfort or whatever it is that you want and you lose your soul, that's a very foolish choice. Which is more important? Which is more lasting? The approval of man or of God? And I think of all of the martyrs in the history of the church who were willing to pay that ultimate price, to die rather than to deny Jesus because they believed and lived what this text says. We live in a country where we have not experienced persecution like many of our brothers around the world. But that doesn't mean that it's easy to be a Christian. There are temptations that come our way all the time, and there are pressures that come from others who may want you to compromise your faith or want you to deny Jesus. Remember these words: that if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father, and of the holy angels. Walk with Christ and testify to what he has done in your life. Kent Hughes, in this commentary on this passage, shares an interesting historical story. He said, 180 years after the death of Charlemagne, that person who united Europe and brought them together in what was called the Holy Roman Empire, about the year 1000, officials of Emperor Otho opened the great king's tomb where in addition to incredible treasures, they saw an amazing sight. The skeletal remains of King Charlemagne were seated on a throne. His crown was still on his skull. A copy of the Gospels was laying on his lap. And his bony finger was resting on the text. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? This is the question that everyone must answer, Who is Jesus? And again, it is the difference between heaven and hell. For those who have placed their trust in Him and who believe that He is the Savior, the Son of God, it means everlasting life. For those who think that Jesus is just a good man, or He's a fraud, or I don't believe in Him, or He was just a historical person, may have done some good things, but I don't want to follow him. It will mean the loss of everything. Have you surrendered everything to him? Have you given him your wealth, your plans, your time, your life? Have you put it all on the table for Jesus? And have you asked them, what do you want me to do with my life, Lord? Jesus, what do you want me to do? That's a great question. Has God wants to use each of us to be a witness for him? And some He calls to go to other parts of the world, or some He calls into full-time ministry, and others He calls to stay right where you are. To be the best doctor you can be. To be the best farmer you can be. The best businessman or woman. The best uh, teacher that you can be. To use your occupation in a way that honors God. To take Him with you into the workplace every single day. And to begin those days saying, Lord, here I am. Would you use me today to be a witness to your love and your grace and your truth? When we do that, it makes all the difference in the world. Let me give you one example as we close. Albert Pujols is a first baseman for the Los Angeles Angels. He's been playing baseball a long time. He's nearing the end of his career, and he's one of those men who will end up, I'm sure, one day in the Hall of Fame. But a number of years ago, he was speaking at an event in Lafayette, Missouri, and he was talking to high school students, young men and young boys and young girls, and he said this, as a Christian, I am called to live a holy life. And my standard for living is set by God, not by the world. I am responsible for growing and sharing the gospel. And then he read Philippians 2.3. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. And Pujols told the crowd, "He said one way for me to stay satisfied in Jesus is to stay humble, to realize that everything he has, whatever success he has gotten, is because of Christ. Humility is getting on your knees and staying in God's will, what He wants for me, not what the, not what the world wants." And he added, "It would be easy." to go out and do whatever I want, but those things only satisfy the flesh for a moment. Jesus satisfies my soul forever. Can you say that? That Jesus satisfies my soul forever. Let's pray. Father, how good it is that we have been given your word so that we can know Jesus. And we thank you for this passage that speaks so powerfully as to who he is, the Messiah, the Savior of the Lord. And Father, thank you for the blessings that come into our life because of knowing Christ. And there is so much more, more than we can even imagine, that awaits us when we spend eternity with you. If you are here today and you're not sure of your relationship with Jesus, would you turn to him and say, Jesus? I ask you to be my Savior, Lord. I confess to you my sins, and I ask you to forgive me. Lord Jesus, I want to walk with you. I want to know you better. Jesus will take you at your word, and you can begin that exciting adventure with him today. And Father, would you use all of us in our occupations, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, to be a loving witness to the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, today as we close, I want you to look at a video that we're gonna be showing that um, shows some highlights from the EFCA conference that took place down in Austin, Texas. Gail and I had the privilege to attend there and we know that not everyone can go to a conference like this, but I think it's good for you to see some of the things that we were talking about. It was just excellent. You're going to see in this video, first person speaking is Kevin Koppelan, our uh, president of the EFCA. who was elected a couple years ago. You'll see some other pastors and professors from Trinity, our seminary, there are speaking there. And it'll give you a flavor for the diversity and richness of the Evangelical Free Church of America. Take a look, and then I'll come up and close our service with our benediction.
1: This idea of abiding in Christ is what the world around us needs to see from us. You see, this abiding in Christ is a continual personal relationship with Jesus characterized by trust and dependent prayer and obedience and joy and love. The authoritative word gives us the substance of what we are to believe. We want Bible reading that reveres the Lord God. Hold the right mentors in high regard. How often does Paul dare say, you want to know how to live? Watch me. How often do you say that to your congregation? Be imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. You ought to be saying it. There is a lot of Christian truth and gospel passed on by being watched. Will you once again recognize who Jesus is? Because Jesus, who is the Lord, called you when he called you into ministry, but he's calling you again, I think. see, he restores us for a purpose. People restore paintings and sculptures for a purpose. They restore buildings for a purpose. Jesus restores us for a purpose. Love him and love others. Having done so much right, I fear that we as a movement might now at this critical junction lose the world because we cannot love one another might we as a movement take up the art of remembering that we dare not forget who we were where we have come from because if we do what god has called us to stands at jeopardy and it's important for us as we think about where we're going in the future that we understand who we are Because I am convinced, friends, that what we do ultimately comes out of who we are, and we must be reminded again. Not so that we live in the past, not so that we try and recreate the past. We celebrate what God has done, and we look ahead to what He will do, but we do it based upon who He's called us to be.
0: Um, that particular video and other videos that uh, we show from the EFCA are, are put together by Lisa Lazat's nephew, Josiah. So a little shout out to Josiah for what he does too. Um, and in a, a few weeks, about two or three weeks from today, we're going to show another one. We are the EFCA that um, you're going to see a couple people from our church in too. So you want to stay tuned for that as well. All right, would you please stand for our benediction from Revelation chapter 1. And now to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve as God and Father, to Him be glory and power forever and ever, and all God's people said, Amen.